Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A language warning. The following program contains language that some listeners may find offensive. Also a content warning that this episode briefly discusses violence and harassment. If you or someone you know is being impacted or experiencing sexual assault, domestic or family violence, phone 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732. Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. And in so doing, I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the Government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. This week marks a decade since those words by former Prime Minister Julia Gillard were broadcast around the world in what became known as the misogyny speech. The speech was made after the then-opposition leader Tony Abbott called for Julia Gillard to fire the then-speaker Peter Slipper due to his misogynistic text messages. But the speech became about a lot more than that motion. At the time of the speech, there were criticisms that the press gallery were out of touch by the gravity of the moment. But is that fair? And how has the iconic speech made headlines since? In this edition of Fourth Estate, we reflect on the media coverage of Julia Gillard's misogyny speech 10 years on. To discuss all this and more, we're joined by Samantha Maiden. She's the political editor of news.com.au and this year's winner of Australia's most prestigious journalism award, the Gold Walkley. She was also the former national political editor for the Sunday Telegraph. Sam Maiden, a warm welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you. And Jess Hill's also with us. She's a Walkley award-winning investigative journalist, speaker and author of the book See What She Made Me Do. Jess was previously a journalist for the ABC and a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail. She's now a dedicated gendered violence reporter for Primer and has made a contribution to former Prime Minister Julia Gillard's new book, Not Now, Not Ever. Jess, a warm welcome back to the Fourth Estate panel. Thank you so much. So... On the day of this speech, when you first heard it, Jess, did you did you get a feeling that there would be that it would be a, a significant moment at that time? What did you feel? The I mean, you were in the Middle East, weren't you, reporting mm. uh, when this when this speech took place? You were reporting for the Global Mail. 
What was mm. your feeling at the time, the atmosphere that you were sensing? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I was living in Beirut and I would have watched it on YouTube and my sense, I'd love to say that I just had the organic knowledge that this was going to be a viral worldwide event in advance but I think I was at the receiving end of the viral worldwide event um, because I was out in the world and and the vantage point from Beirut was was really different so it wasn't just me there's been talk about there having been a disconnect between social media and the press gallery which I'm sure you know Sam can comment on um, much more directly mm. but I was at that further remove, which was out of Australia entirely um, and, and not engaged with the day-to-day back and forth of Parliament hardly at all. Um, and I guess for, for me, listening to those words and seeing it on YouTube without any sort of involvement either personally or professionally with Australian Parliament, it was immediately clear that it was an historic moment, but I, I had already seen the waves it was starting to make internationally, which is why I was watching it at all. Um, and certainly there was discussion about it at the cafe down the road um, from me in Beirut um, the next day. It was, it was amazing to see just when we talk about a viral event, just how much impact it had overseas and, and how much impact it had on women living nearby um, in Jamaisi in the Christian area of Beirut, um, it was immediately obvious to them that this was a powerful speech. So I only sort of caught up with the with what people talk about as being the disconnect in Australia um, from a distance. Sam, as we've as Jess has just touched on there, uh, there was there did seem to be somewhat of a disconnect at the time. There's there's definitely been criticism that the media coverage, at least in the first 24 hours following on from the speech, was negative or it, it sort of failed to grasp the significance of the moment. You reported on the speech at the time for the Sunday Telegraph, Sam. Do you think that's a fair criticism? It is to some extent. I suppose that we had the benefit of the Sunday Telegraph. The speech happened on the Tuesday. We published on the Sunday. So I had a weekly deadline. And so we definitely had more time to basically think about it. Um, But I suppose it might be useful to talk about that day and what was going on in that day. Mm. Um, A lot of the period of Julie Gillard's prime ministership, because of how fragile it was in terms of being a hung parliament, you know, they'd put this speaker in, um, Peter Slipper, who'd previously been a Liberal MP who was very controversial. Um, it, it was just a period of complete chaos, roiling chaos, right? Like there was, um, you know, the Gillard government had been quite successful in terms of getting legislation through, like they managed parliament very well, but there was this roiling sort of chaos, right? And into that came uh, these allegations that emerged Um, from James Ashby, who was a staffer in the office, and these sexist um, text messages where he'd basically sort of women's genitalia was referred to um, uh, in uh, ways that involved mollusks, I think we can best describe it as. And, look, Mm. there's a whole bunch of things going on. I mean, one is I'd actually been leaked some of those text messages the Sunday before, and we hadn't been able to get the story up for a variety of reasons. So there was part of me that was like journalistically sort of kicking myself because I'd had some of them and we hadn't got the story up. Then it had exploded. Then there were calls for Peter Slipper to resign. And 
so there was all of these things going on. And the reason why I give that background is because it, it helps explain in part, not, not entirely, but it helps explain in part why, you know, people say, why wasn't this on the front page the next day? Right. And part of it was because a lot of blokes were reporting on it. I'll get to that. But part of it was also because, you know, that happened at 2.45 and it was like, whoa, blow your face off, you know, like Julie Gard's given this incredibly powerful speech. And then as the day went on, there were just more explosions and then Peter Slipper resigned. And so most of the news coverage the next day kind of focused on Peter Slipper resigns, at least on the front pages, right? And some of that is just a normal journalistic instinct that, you know, the, the the last thing that happened is the news, if that if that makes sense, right? Mm. But then I just want to go to talk about my own emotional reaction in the chamber, right? So I was sitting in the chamber and she started to give this speech and I remember being hit by this kind of wall of an emotion and I remember feeling almost a bit embarrassed or concerned or worried that people would see that in me that that does that make sense like I was worried that mm. I was emotionally affected by the speech not because I was kind of emotionally wedded to Julia Gillard's speech uh, prime ministership I was a reporter and I was there to report right but there was something unusual about what she was doing and part of the reason why it was unusual which I think people kind of lose a bit in the mist of times is that Julia Gillard spent a really long time playing down the gender thing Mm. And she actually acknowledges this in her book. She talks about it. But um, I've got to have to stop talking because I could talk about this for a long time. But, like, there was a lot of stuff going on. That's what I'm trying to say, right? And my physical kind of emotional reaction in the chamber was I just thought, oh, my God, she's really going for it. And I'd never, I hadn't actually seen a female political leader do, do that in the chamber in that way. I had been a political reporter by that time in Canberra for about, I think about 14 years. And I, I'd never seen someone do that. And I was just like going, she's never, she, I hadn't seen her speak in that way. And it was just mm. sort of a real kind of gut punch. There's a lot of gut punches and a lot of, you know, so I did have that visceral reaction that I think a lot of women had to the speech. And I thought it was really interesting. Like there was kind of a few women, you know, like Jackie Maley wrote a piece for the SMH and, and, mm. you know, by the Sunday, like I had this, you know, really good editor at the Sunday Telegraph, Claire Harvey, and we were like, we want to do lots of stuff on this speech. And so in the Sunday Telegraph, you know, we had like people writing opinion page who thought it was good, who thought it was bad, and why we had a lot of analysis. And, you know, I think there's almost probably there were people that looked at the Sunday Telegraph and was like, what are these crazy ladies doing at the Sunday Telegraph, you know, because we were kind of getting into it in a way that we did. And so I don't pretend that our coverage was somehow exemplary, but I think that the idea that nobody got it uh, wasn't true. But I also think that you have to account for the practice of daily journalism, which has only gotten more stressful since, which is people just filing multiple stories a day and all these things are blowing up. And, you, you know, like it's easier if you're not in that culture to kind of pull focus a bit, I think. Hmm. And I think just what on what Sam was saying there too, uh, and this is uh, a chat that I had with Catherine Murphy for uh, the quarterly essay that I did on Me Too last year and not to, uh, I don't want to verbal um, Catherine, but, you know, what we were talking about was that back then as a female journalist, you're still like proving your straps a bit and that you're not a female journalist interested in female issues because that was not seen as 
you know, back then in the annals of time a decade ago, um, that wasn't really seen as a credible area of reporting. I mean, this is um, this is three years before Rosie Valley would become Australian of the Year, before we would open up a conversation about domestic violence in this country. Um, we, as I write in the chapter, you know, a fortnight earlier than this speech, I'd, I'd logged on to ABC Radio Melbourne to listen to the morning broadcaster John Fain talk about the rape and murder of his colleague Jill Maher, which was a massive issue, not least because she was an ABC employee and there was open grieving for her on air, um, but because there were obviously marches that followed. And I don't remember connecting those events in my head and I don't remember anyone connecting those events at that time because there was no connective tissue back then in people's heads between those two events. Um, yet now, if those two events were to follow on so closely, there'd be endless column inches dedicated to the confluence of politics and crime and misogyny and men's attitudes, et cetera, and gender equality. So there's a language that has developed and a credibility that has been invested in writing about these issues with that philosophical and political lens on it that did not, not really exist back then to that degree. But I think the other thing is women, not all women, like the, the reaction wasn't universally that it was like reviled by men and praised by women. There were women that didn't think it was any good or men that thought it was great. But there was also, I think, women read the speech differently to men. So I think that um, if you were a male political reporter, I think that some of those things wouldn't resonate as much. Like when she was talking about being called a bitch and most women at some point have had that happen to them. And so it, they sort of have a more visceral reaction to what she's doing and also the danger of what she's doing in that. Um, and I've written about this in a piece that I've written recently that, you know, there is a section of the community and probably the vast majority of people that listen to this podcast that view it as this incredibly heroic, um, you know, seismic moment. And it's all of those things, but I don't think that if you're a male political reporter who was just focused on the politics of the day and what does it mean? And, oh, Julie Gillard's just throwing out these barbs to kind of, you know, deflect from what we should really be talking about. I don't think that they got it if that makes sense. And that's really interesting to reflect on, you know, and the way that's changed. And a lot of the time that changes just because there's more women reporting, right, in the same way that the discussion of race would change if you had, you know, more reporters that weren't from a white Anglo-Saxon background, right? I mean, it's a truism that you report on what you know and your experiences do become relevant to what you report on because that's what you know and that's why different things resonate with you. Isn't it interesting, Jess, that you you just said that at that time as a journalist you, you sort of didn't want to, I guess, hitch your wagon to, to women's issues or being seen because it, it, it denoted a lack of seriousness um, yeah. uh, to, to, to your work. And Sam, you've also touched on the fact that Julia Gillard as Prime Minister had sort of done that as as PM. I mean, when she ascended to the Prime Ministership, her opening address to, to the press was the first female Prime Minister and also the first red-headed Prime Minister. We can discuss which one is more unlikely, you know, sort of almost trying to play down the female aspect and make light of it. And She did, right, and she did because... It was, I think, regarded as not politically smart to kind of 
carry on about it. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I think people forget is that with the passage of time, I think there's this idea that, you know, Julie Gillard, the coverage of Julie Gillard was sort of universally negative and that's just not true. Like when she was first elected, I still remember, cause I kept it for a long time. There was like front pages on all the tabloids with these beautiful glossy images of her wearing a white jacket and Australia's first female prime minister. There was this real kind of uprising of, isn't this amazing? There's a female prime minister and what you talk to your daughters about it. And what are people at school? Like it was a positive thing. And the fact that it went bad, it did also like was a result of mistakes that the Gillard government made. You know, I mean, people have raised this idea that I think it was on the same day or certainly within the 24 hours, they put through all that legislation on um, single parenting payment and stuff that was really difficult mm. for women. Um, so I, I, I just, for me, I don't like this black and white view, right? Like I don't like, I just think that it lacks nuance. It, if you, you know, I actually like what Julia Gillard says about it, where she says that, gender issues you know don't explain all of what happened to her but mm -hmm. they explain some of it and I think that, that 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 is true you know like I don't like this idea of Julia Gillard as as like this you know white jacket Bodicea Joan of Arc figure that everything she did was good and all the criticism mm -hmm. of her was bad you know but equally I don't like people who try and suggest that gender had nothing to do with it it did and and you know in the short term at least I think that that speech did damage her in some pockets and some vote. Like I still remember Labor MPs telling me that they'd go to like building sites and work sites and they'd have these big burly blokes kind of say to them, um, God, she just reminds me of this bitch I've got at work who's an off, you know, like, like people, I'm not saying that everybody was like that, but I am saying that there was something kind of visceral in the Australian psyche at that time that, bristled at female mm. power and it, female power had to be expressed in a way that was acceptable and that is reflected by the fact that Julia Gillard was so keen to make jokes about it and kind of downplay it and, to, and that was what made the moment when she sort of ripped off the mask and just went for it so powerful because she hadn't been talking like that at all you know and and you, if you think about the things that Julia Gillard had to do to get to parliament like people forget this but like Lindsay Tanner and all these people spent absolutely years like I was going to use a word that Kevin Rudd uses that um, rhymes with rat trucking people spent years like just messing with her right like it was so hard for her to get into parliament and so she really learned I think sometimes how to sort of play this game with these men you know but isn't that quite reflective of the sort of quasi-feminism that was so prevalent at that time. You know, it was don't don't make your femaleness an issue. Don't make your femaleness an issue. Be as strong as the boys and and play their game and that's how you're going to beat them at it. But but de-emphasize your femaleness. Just sure. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of that that still happens. Like I don't think that's gone away. Mm. I think that the idea that that's gone away is a complete myth. Jess? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say it's all like playing in the big boys club. Um, but remembering too like that we were living in a time of you know, where mis a, a misogynist culture was absolutely ascendant and Tony Abbott, you know, had set a tone in this country or, or had um, brought, brought out the latent misogyny that is, you know, very strong in, in, um, in Australia and the culture of mateship, which is largely exclusive um, to men. And, and that was the, that was the culture that we were all swimming in, but 
it's, you know, you, you can't ignore the fact that a lot of people on social media, some some rightly, some wrongly, maybe missing some nuance, but overall felt like the the feelings that were expressed by a lot of observant people on social media, which back then was not as awful as it is now, <laughs> um, was in total disconnect with what was emerging as the prevailing message out of the press gallery, which was obviously, you know, had it had its exceptions, but largely was saying that this was this was a mistake that she was playing the gender card. Um, and and I guess, yeah, I mean, it was one of those early times where social media was up in arms that like, you know, the press gallery doesn't represent us. It doesn't report on our interests. It reports on the interests of the day-to-day mm. -day machinations of Canberra, but we're the audience, you know, and, and why, why is it seeing it so differently to the way that we are seeing it? And why isn't there more of a correction, you know, going on as the public expresses its views on it? And, you know, I remember Catherine Murphy saying to me, and I'm sure she says in her piece, that part of the reason for her and everybody is so different, but for her as someone, you know, who would write thoughtful, reflective pieces on, on these types of political events, she almost just didn't want to imagine that it was possible the entire time of the Gillard prime ministership that misogyny was playing such an enormous role, mm. that it could still be so influential and that with the first Australian female prime minister, this was how Australia was going to respond. Um, she, she does write. Know. She does write that in her contribution to the book. She she writes, but at some level, I couldn't process what was happening. I couldn't fathom it. I understood that male entitlement remained a cultural default, but the male entitlement informing the gratuitous critique of Gillant's looks, idioms, and character by some of her political opponents and some Neanderthal media figures undermined truths about progress. That I believe to be absolute. Without ever being particularly conscious of this being a decision or an active accommodation I was making, I minimised the whole phenomenon in my mind. Most of the time I put evidence that felt too awful to process into a box. Sam, what do you, what do you sort of make on that? Do you feel like there was a... You couldn't quite fathom, you, you couldn't quite register that that was actually happening, that that was playing such a part because you sort of thought that it already we'd already fought those battles. No, I didn't have that reaction at all. I could completely fathom what was going on because I've lived in those environments mm. all my working life. Like I, I just didn't, there wasn't a moment for me where I was like, oh, I can't process what's going on. And I knew exactly what was fucking going on, right? <laughs> exactly what was going on. And it didn't surprise me that, that was happening because um, people resist change, right? Like female power is frightening, right? Like, I mean, you know, like it's there are ways that women are meant to behave and there's ways that women are not meant to behave. And when you don't behave in ways that women are meant to behave, you get punished. Mm. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I just, it was very clear to me that part of the reaction to her was about, being a woman that didn't mean that I thought she was some sort of you know um I don't know latter-day saint or something you know like I thought that she was a flawed prime minister in the way that all prime ministers and politicians are flawed like I didn't think she was perfect right but it was completely obvious to me that there was this kind of undercurrent and I wasn't really surprised by that because you know like I've experienced that in my own life like I you know like I yeah, I, I I could see what was happening and I knew what was happening and I, yeah. 
I was on stage with um, Grace Tame in Hobart a couple of nights ago and I, I asked her, you know, do you think that it would be harder for a pedophile to get away with it in a school now, 12 years after you were abused by a maths teacher? And she said, well, yeah, I think that it probably would because we understand at a community level or have a much better understanding of concepts that I didn't even know existed back then, um, like grooming. And we have a better understanding of things like coercive control. We've had now seven years talking about misogyny. Um, Malcolm Turnbull as prime minister, you know, really foregrounded misogyny in, in one of his first announcements and, and for violence against women for, for funding that. Um, so there is a there is now a language and an understanding that is far more advanced. And I would say, actually, for all of Australia's flaws and the fact that we have this, you know, really quite strong vein of, of um, machismo and, and misogyny, we actually have some of the most advanced also understandings and conversations about this issue um, from anywhere I've seen in the world. So you know, history obviously doesn't repeat, it rhymes and something will come up probably to disprove everything I've just said um, in the next 12 months um, that, that we will miss and we will see with a different lens with the, you know, perspectives, you know, the perspective of history. Um, but I do think that we're much quicker to jump onto things like this now because we just have better understandings of it. The other thing that I would say, though, just to be a contrarian is that I wrote a lot about, you know, Tony Abbott and abortion and, you know, a whole bunch of, of things in that space, right? But I also think there was a complexity to Tony Abbott where, which was intriguing, that he actually really liked strong female characters, right? He had a really strong mum. He had a really strong wife. He had three daughters he had uh, this chief of staff, Peter Credlin, who was so strong that people called her a bitch and, and didn't like some of her behaviour. Now, people have different views about all of those things, but I think that that was the other intriguing part of this because I'm not, you know, like discounting that Julia Gillard didn't make, um, you know, proper criticisms of Tony Abbott, but it was also a piece of politics, right? It was also a piece of politics on the floor of parliament that was designed to wound him. And, you know, that was what was so powerful about this as well, because you could see from the look on his face, like he, he sort of has this kind of stupid grin on his face as it starts. And then as it goes on, he realizes, uh Oh, I'm really taking a beating here now. Right. And it was one of those things where Julia Gillard kind of beat the boys at their own game. Right. I mean, parliament is such a combative um, and it is aggressive. It is a male environment, right? And she was such a master on the floor of parliament. She was so powerful. She really did soak in how the boys did it and she did it better and she did it to him. And, you know, there was all these sort of interesting elements of that. Like I know that Julie Gillard writes in the book that she went to sit down and you know, she's given this speech and she sort of turns to Wayne Swan and says, oh, I might get some of my, you know, paperwork sent up so I can sign some documents. And Wayne Swan just looks at her and goes, 
you don't go and ask sign papers in parliament after you've given the jacuz speech you know like and so i think there was that sense that she didn't even know entirely what she'd done but it was just driven by this kind of visceral anger that she was like i can't believe i've had to put up with all this crap i haven't said anything right and now you're accusing me of being a misogynist because peter slipper sent some rude texts about mollusks you know like and she sort of exploded out of the the gates but you know, it was also a piece of politics. It was also designed to wound Tony Abbott, you know, and it did. Do you think Australia was ready for a female Prime Minister, Samantha? You're never going to be ready. You've just got to crash or crash through, right? And so, you know, like, I mean, you're never going to wait until people are ready. <laughs> people are never going to be ready. People find out how ready they are when the moment arrives. And we got to find out that in real time. And it wasn't always pretty, you know. It was ugly because a lot of people were ready, but not everybody was. And you saw that in her being called, you know, suggesting that she, her father died of shame or that the chaff bag and all the rest of it, you know, like, and, and I think there's sort of complexities to all those things, you know, that it, it like I've, I, I'm a bit of a broken record on this. It doesn't mean that any criticism of her is not valid. It doesn't mean that, but I think it does mean that there was an edge to some of it um, and there was a violence to some of it that, that may not have otherwise occurred. Jess? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think it just was it was soaking in it, you know. Um, I remember at one stage, not to sort of go hard on Alan Jones, although I'm sure people, some people wouldn't mind, um, but it was, the, you know, one of these callers called in and said, you know, let's bring back the guillotine and he agreed. You know, like, I mean, in that sense that it becomes quite unhinged um, and that's what and that's what that misogyny and dehumanization does. It takes us to this unhinged level. And also, I think when you are when you are being portrayed like that, and when you are soaking in that day after day after day, I actually don't know how you continue to do politics at all. Um, and I'm sure that there'd be people from the right side of politics who would say that they have experienced, you know, similar attacks to their self-esteem that have made it very difficult for them to stay in public life also. But there is, as Sam said, like there's, there's that edge that, that Gillard was in no matter what she did, you know, and of course there's deserved criticism. And then there's the, the atmosphere that she was absolutely immersed in day after day no matter what she did and I yeah. think that's that's the 10 that was the 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 tone of that whole thing and why we're still talking about it 10 mm. years later. While the speech was directed to the then opposition leader Tony Abbott it, it also referred to sexism that was reported by the Australian media and that was constantly within the reporting of the Prime Minister by the Australian media. Do you think it's fair to say that it, it was a febrile time? Do you think the media and do you think the media has taken some lessons from this time, Jess? Oh, I think definitely. Well, that, not just the lessons of that time. So some people will have had like periods of introspection over that time for sure. Um, I think though that we're just living in a different culture. Um, what we're able to discuss now are a lot of the invisible forces that were at play during that time that while people might have picked up on and known that, you know, as Sam was saying before, like, you know, women step out of the their allotted, you know, circle and they get punished for it, um, the just general discussions we have now about misogyny and the general discussions we have about um, harassment and vile behaviour and, you know, all the way through to the Respect at Work report, like there is such a, everyone has had a period of introspection. I actually don't know another country that has gone through 
so much introspection over its own various traumas as Australia has in the last few years. Um, and everything from the institutional, you know, the Royal Commission Institutional Child Sex Abuse through to the tenure of Rosie Batty as Australian of the Year, all the way up to Grace Tame as Australian of the Year and everything in between, Black Lives Matter. We have really trawled over our bad behaviour and our trauma quite relentlessly <laughs> over the past, you know, over the past 10 years. And it has changed us as a nation, hasn't changed the stats on violence, um, but it has changed what we what we pick up on and how we talk about it. And there is a level of accountability now that's on the media that is far more fierce than it ever was even 10 years ago. Um, and I think there's much more responsiveness from journalists now, um, not in every area, but in this area particularly um, on the treatment of women, there is much more responsiveness. Mm. Can I ask a really difficult and depressing question though, right? If the stats haven't changed, what has changed? Isn't that what's important? Like, it's great that we're all talking about it and it's great that the conversation is different. And, but it's also, you know, a certain part of the community that's talking about it. But doesn't that also tell you that something's gone wrong? Oh, 100%. Um, that's why I keep working on this area. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd just, you know, move on to something nice and light. Um, but the thing is what you have to do first is get people across the concepts and the ways in which this type of violence hides um, behind the grooming of the community, behind, you know, making itself invisible through coercive control, through the, the widespread un, unacknowledged presence of misogyny and the way that we even um, interpret these events. That's what has changed. I mean, in the last three, I, I brought out my book three years ago, even in that three years, the level of sophistication around this conversation has changed inexorably and, and it has also made a lot of people aware of what they have been subjected to, whereas before they couldn't put those pieces together. Now, that's unfortunately when you are trying to, like, undo patriarchy, let's say, um, <laughs> it is a very long and torturous process and things grind slowly um, and the backlash to all of this can lead to increased levels of violence in the short term. Um, so it's a complicated landscape. Um, do you think that sort of, the, sorry to interrupt you, um, Jess, do you think that sort of resembles the backlash that then Prime Minister Gillard experienced by by taking on the reins of, of the Prime Ministership? Do you think it's that sort of visceral anger? Mm, I think, think you know it's a good question. It's I think with Gillard, it was more reactionary. This this kind of backlash, it's the source, it's the same sort of backlash we've seen um, when when any like feminist wave has really crested. Um, we saw it in the seventies, saw it in the nineties, eighties, and nineties over the rise of the career woman. Um, you know, and and we're seeing it now um, in the in at the back end of Me Too, um, and it, it's as it's utterly predictable, um, but it also has real-world consequences. Um, I mean, you know, if you've got another hour, I'll, I'll take you through exactly <laughs> why it is that, you know, while our understandings and our levels of, you know, communication on these subjects can go leaps and bounds, us, the statistics can stay the same or get worse. Um, it's the, these two don't, these two don't run in parallel tracks, unfortunately. Um, that's what we hope to bring, you know, closer together, you know, bring the statistics closer to the broader community understanding rather than 
have what we have now, which is a, you know, really um, endemic problem of rape culture and um, and domestic violence. There's something that Jess just said that reminded me another piece of context that I think is interesting in the discussion of how Julie Gillard was framed, which was that she was framed as someone who had, like, stabbed Kevin right in the back, right? Lady Macbeth. And so, you know, I mean, my God, how many prime ministers did we have in the last 10 years, right? Like this stuff happens in politics all the time, but it was viewed in a different lens, I think, because it was a woman. It was viewed in this, like you say, Lady Macbeth and people would talk about Madame Defarge. (laughs) You know, like it was... It was viewed as, again, this unacceptable expression of female power, right? Like the boys could tear each other down for years and years and it was all just politics, but there was this different um, cultural kind of almost unconscious reaction to a woman doing it, which I think really soured her prime ministership as well with voters. Um And that was a reflection of all of the ingrained ideas. I think that not everybody, some people have in the culture about women and what is an acceptable expression of female power and an unacceptable expression of female power. Sam, shifting it back to the the media's coverage of all of this and a specific arm of the media, I suppose the criticism at the time was that there was the reaction differed, the, the reaction to her speech differed between the Australian media and, say, the global media, the press gallery as well, and and, and the Australian people, do you think this reflected an echo chamber within the the press gallery? Oh, maybe. I mean, like, as much as it does anywhere, right? I mean, look, after arguing for nuance earlier in the (laughs) chat, I'll now go for something crass and black and white. I just think it came back to the fact that there was a bunch of older blokes that were mainly the political editors, basically. That was it. And so there was a group of blokes that were all, you know, in their 40s or 50s and they saw the world in a particular way and they were the kind of gatekeepers. And there were some women around the traps, you know, like me or like Catherine Murphy or like Jacqueline Maley that were kind of like, oh, hang on, like I think there's something else going on here. (laughs) But like, you know, I think there's probably an element of people thinking that we were like um, idiots. Mm. Ten years on, as we reflect on the media coverage of the misogyny speech, do you think Australian media has progressed since then? And if so, what what are we still grappling with, do you think, when reporting on gender issues within Parliament? Jess? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, I, I think that... I'm so deep in my own bubble, to be honest, um, that in terms of reporting on gendered violence, that um, I, I think I, certainly when I look out across like the the general types of reporting on 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 that issue, things are a lot better, and people journalists are a lot more aware of how they're reporting not only affects, impacts, you know, the issue, um, but also impacts individuals. That's not to say that we still don't have, you know, bad examples, but I think, you know, there the work of our watch and others has really um, pulled a, a new generation and the old generation of journalists much further ahead than we were um, 10 years ago uh, for certain. And, we're much quicker to jump on things um, that are inappropriate or dangerous um, 
And I think journalists are much quicker to respond to that now. Samantha. Yeah, I think from a cultural point of view, it's changed. Like, I agree with everything that Jess has said. But I think um, the other thing I come back to is just the practicality of journalism, because when people want to uh, analyze this, I think sometimes they're analyzing it again from that pull focus. And you've got to have some sort of understanding of what is the practicality of working day to day, right? So the part that I think has gotten worse since then is that, you know, many, many years ago, it would be this whole thing that you'd come into work and you would kind of spend the day listening to parliament. And then maybe at about five o'clock at night, you might, you know, start typing, you know, or maybe you'd be doing one story or, you know, maybe you're even someone, God forbid, that has a weekly deadline or like, like nobody has monthly deadlines, but you know, that just doesn't even exist. But the vast majority of reporters now work in an environment where they have to file like two or three or four stories a day. Um, And so that is another uh, risk that you miss something important because you're just filing so much. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds like a ridiculous point, but it's kind of an important point oh. because it goes to the structure of how people are reporting. Mm-hmm. The thing that's good about it, like say with a site like news.com, is that the good thing about digital, and people criticize this, they say it's clickbait and all the rest of it, but the good thing about digital is completely led by the reader, right? So if there's lots of interest in a story, um, you know, the story stays up for longer. You know, if no one's clicking on the story, the story gets moved on. So in that way, journalism has become far more connected with what the reader wants. And I think you would find that, you know, and I'm sure you even found, would find this at the time if I went back to people, spoke to people at news.com, there'd be a lot of people clicking on stories about that speech that would basically be able to smash through the kind of one-dimensional view of what some of the male political reporters see. So do you see what I'm saying? Like there's, there's really good things about digital because it actually empowers the reader because the reader is driving interest. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it can be a really good thing, but I still think that, you know, it's really difficult sometimes um, in terms of the practice of journalism, journal- like, you know, digital native reporters, the young reporters that I see today, like they're so good, they're so fast, their news are, at instincts are so attuned, like they're much better, I think, than a lot of journalists were 15, 20 years ago, right? But there's also a price to be paid for having to write that much every day. And, you know, all of those things came into the force again with, you know, with that roiling day of drama that I'm talking about and the reason why no one had enough time to kind of, and, you know, some people go, shouldn't it be obvious? But, like, sometimes if you're in that kind of wall of sound, bear pit, there's so many things happening, right, Um, sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's not obvious because it doesn't resonate with you because you haven't experienced those things in your life, which is why it's important to have reporters from different backgrounds. Mm. On that note, I'd like to thank our guests on the panel this week, Sam Maiden. Thank you. And Jess Hill. Thanks, Tina. And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. 
Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Epic thanks, as always, to my producer Marlene Even and executive producer Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and catch us next week on Fourth Estate.